This is Victoria of TheUnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Hey there, pardon the interruption before the episode actually starts. After I edited the two-hour podcast episode, I decided to break it up into two parts only because there's so much information, good, good information, that I felt like there needed to be some sort of time to like process what you're listening to uh, because there is so much goodness in there. And I just felt like, too, it would help... um, you're more likely to listen to the whole thing if it's not almost two hours long, right? So this is now part one with the interview with David Bartley. And in this episode, he, I mean, we talk a lot about connection. Um, He gives practical questions to ask someone who is potentially uh, having some suicidal ideation. Um, He speaks of a day like no other, which was the day that he was going to jump off of the fourth tallest bridge in the country, which is um, near San Francisco. And it is not the Golden Gate. Actually, it's Forest Hill Bridge, which is taller than the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, He shares that personal story and um, we talk a lot about depression itself, um, mental illness overall. He shares a lot of resources that I will probably put in the show notes for both episodes just because I feel like I I don't want anyone to miss any of the good things he had to share. Also in this episode, he shares a suicide prevention technique called QPR, which stands for Question, Persuade, Refer. And he shared a quote by Dr. Paul Quinnett, which I absolutely loved. He said, it's the unasked questions that lead to tragedy. And so we talked a lot about connection and it's just so many amazing ways that we can support others who are dealing with depression, um, who may have suicidal ideation. And really, it's so informative because I learned so much and to really hold each other's hearts in our hands and understand that there's a battle in some people that we can't see sometimes. So enjoy this episode. Um, Come back for part two. Um, What I also failed to mention at the end of the episode is, um, or what that you won't hear at the end of this episode because it's the first half, but at the end of part two, I also had forgotten to ask David where people can reach him. Uh, It was just an amazing conversation that slipped my mind, but if you would like to reach out to David, you can find him on his website at davidwoodsbartley.com, and I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Um, He's also on Facebook, uh, david.w.bartley.5, the number five. Again, I'll put the um, links in the show notes. He also has a TED Talk 
titled How Connections Saved My Life. Um, it, this is just an amazing conversation. I'm very proud of this episode. Both parts, actually, is one episode split into two, but enjoy. Share with someone you know and love um, because you never know. It could save a life. Welcome to another episode of Grieving Voices. Today, my guest is David Woods Bartley. As a mental health speaker, educator, and trainer, David has seen his fair share of successes and setbacks from directing a nationally recognized nonprofit to battling a life-threatening mental illness. It was the latter, a brutal knockdown, drag-out fight with clinical depression that led David to a suicide attempt. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you so, so much for being here. Um, I'm excited because like I've shared with you before in email um, and before we started to record, uh, this is a topic, mental health, suicide prevention is something that is very much needed. I think everywhere, but I definitely feel it within, in my state and my community and surrounding area. So again, thank you for being here and welcome. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you so much. And thank you for the work that you're doing, not just to shine the light on mental health, but in particular grief, because I think it is every person, not everybody will have an experience of depression or suicidal ideation, but we all experience grief. And I think that there's, I think that there's an equal stigma to grief and there's always a timeline associated. If we lose somebody, then we have X number of days or weeks or months to process it. But then after that, then we are stigmatized because we're taking too long. So thank you for what you're doing, because I think in the absence of being able to process grief, I think that would lead into a condition that I experienced, which would be depression and untreated can ultimately potentially take somebody's life. So tell us about that journey for you, when, when it started for you. And so the, in terms of the, the way I begin most talks is to talk about a day in my life that was like no other. And that was August 31st, 2011. And for most people, this rather average hump day was indeed just ordinary and run of the mill. But for me, it was like no day I had ever experienced because that was the day I was going to kill myself. And that was the day that the monster known as clinical depression, after passionately trying for close to 40 years on that day, convinced me beyond any doubt that I was worthless, useless, pitiful, grotesque, stupid, ugly, that I'd become an embarrassment and a burden to my family. And most damning was the fact that on that particular day, the monster convinced me, not just as a passing thought, not just as, well, maybe, but truly albeit illogical, I believed it to be true that everybody in my then life, my former wife, Deanna, my family and my friends on that day, I believed that their lives would improve exponentially in the wake of my death and the absence of my pitiful and grotesque existence. So the time I was living about 30 minutes east of Sacramento in Northern California, about two hours west of San Francisco, and I lived on this two and a half acre parcel with Deanna. And I remember that day here in Northern California at the end of August, there's no chance of rain and there's almost never a cloud in the sky. And I remember Victoria going out that morning and it was like Michelangelo had come down and done a, his version of, of a blue sky. And after a while being outside, we lived in this beautiful area. I went back into the house. I sat down at the computer and typed out my suicide note. 
And then without telling anybody where I was headed, I made the short 20-minute drive from our home in this little town called Penryn to what is known as the Forest Hill Bridge. Now, everybody knows the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge, but almost nobody knows the Forest Hill Bridge, which is the fourth tallest bridge in the country. At 730 feet, it is 500 feet further off the ground than its more famous cousin. And it's important to note that this was not my first trip to the bridge. And it is universally accurate to say that suicide is almost never spontaneous. It is incredibly rare when someone just spontaneously ends their life. Most of us who suffer are plagued with suicidal ideations as I was in my case for close to four decades. And so in imagining, wondering, planning what and how I would end my life, I had chosen that I would jump off the Forest Hill Bridge. And so I had made trips to the bridge, not in a some sort of more morbid way, but in the thrust of grieving. And I love what Johan Hari, who has probably the best TED talk I've ever seen, which is everything we know about addiction is wrong. And in Johan's word that the opposite, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. So we think about what's happening now in isolation. And he has a further quote that says, isn't depression in all its forms really a form of grief? Grief for the life that you thought you would have, grief for the life that you did have, grief for the life that you wanted to have. And so I imagine this in suicidal ideations, that's just what you do. And so when I arrived at the bridge on that day, I knew exactly where I was gonna park. And I remember bringing my vehicle to a rest and I turned off the ignition and then I put my hands reflexively on the 10 and two position on the steering wheel, took this deep breath, opened my eyes, reached over, grabbed the suicide note, placed that right in the center of the dash. And then I took the keys out of the ignition, placed those on the note, exited the vehicle, turned back around just to make sure the door was unlocked and then faced back again, crossed over the road and then came to the the closest part of the bridge, the bridge deck, and it's a half mile long. And if you, if you Google the Forest Hill Bridge, Victoria, the, the view from either side is spectacular. It's stunning. But I didn't want to look at the view. I didn't want to make eye contact with any of the passing drivers. Instead, I focused on a light post that stood right at the midpoint. And I made my way there. And then once there, turned to the left, pressed my body up against the suicide barrier. So it hit me right about mid chest. And again, not looking at the view. Instead, I focused on the water that was flowing in the North Fork of the American River. And I once again closed my eyes and I began to imagine what's the most efficient way, like how am I going to make my way over this barrier? And I'd done the calculation. It was going to take me seven and a half seconds to fall. And I thought, what's that going to feel like? What am I going to think? And then I thought, I just somehow either want to pass out or pass away before I make impact. I mean, there's no way I was going to survive a 700 foot drop, but I didn't want to feel the pain. And I was so fixated, so focused in that present moment that I can't tell you how long I was there. I don't know. But thankfully, it was long enough for a passing driver to act on a, a sense, something we've all experienced. And she looked upon the scene and thought, something's not right with this picture. She picked up the phone, called 911, and a sheriff's deputy approached me from the left-hand side and initially established contact, which is logistical, and then created connection, which is life-saving, because connection creates hope 
and hope saves lives. So I was taken off the bridge into an emergency department and then to a psychiatric ward where I would spend the next 15 days. And when people Victoria found out I was there and why, it like does not calculate, does not compute. They couldn't get their head around it because instead of seeing me as clinically depressed, instead of seeing me as somebody who thought he was worthless, people saw me as the happy and contented co-director of a nationally recognized animal sanctuary called A Chance for Bliss. And you and I talked about this a little bit. Gizmo would have loved this place. And the sanctuary was amazing, home to as many as 100 animals at any one time. 25 horses, 23 dogs, nine pot-bellied pigs, goats and sheep and ducks and geese and bunnies and birds and fish and turtles and everything. Like Noah, I'm sure, would be, have been so jealous if he came back and looked at that. He's like, wow. And as I shared with you, for an animal to come, they had to fit into one of four categories. Very old, very sick, some sort of special needs, or the vast majority were at the end of life. And so Dee and I, my former bride, and I did no adoptions. And instead, animals came and then they stayed until they made their transition. They went to the greenest pasture of all. And, and we became known as this forever home in different parts of the country, even different parts of the world. And on June 2nd, 2010, we were the cover story in the life section of USA Today. And so I didn't fit the image of somebody who was mentally ill. I didn't fit the image of somebody who was clinically depressed, somebody who was suicidal, somebody who was at a high risk to end their life, to kill themselves. But I think of everything that I talk about in the, in the, the wonderful opportunities that I'm given is this, is that sometimes what hurts the most cannot be seen. Sometimes great despair, overwhelming grief, soul crippling, soul killing agony lies just behind a forced smile a distracting joke, or in this case, a seemingly perfect and ideal life. And not even my beloved, this amazing woman, she had no idea the degree of hopelessness. On that dark spot on a tall, tall bridge, just 14 short months after the mountaintop experience of the USA Today, there I was, one short movement from killing myself. But incredibly, amazingly, divinely, my life was saved. And on that day, on the day I thought would be my very last day alive, it wasn't said the, the first day of a brand new life and the first steps in what has now been a nine-year journey away from mental hellness and into the experience of our birthright, mental health. And so that's, that's how I am here today, to be in your loving, wonderful, incredible hands, to, to do anything I can to support the work that you do and, and hope that anything that I could say would eliminate even a little bit of suffering from a soul who may be suffering at this point. What do you think set this off? The the clinical depression is it's like um, I think that's actually one of uh, the questions I had here. What are some of the causes of mental illness yeah. and and your personal experience? What led to that day? So it's interesting, and as I, I as I tell the, the speech that I give the most often is called "Sometimes what hurts the most can't be seen, and sometimes what helps the most is easy to do." And in the beginning of the speech, so I tell that's the intro, and then I talk about in the second day in the psych hospital, I had this amazing experience with a psychiatrist. Now, a lot of times when we think about a, a shrink, there's no like happy image that comes to mind, but this guy walked in and he wasn't, didn't have a lab coat, didn't have a stethoscope. And there was just something about the energy, like the vibe that this guy got off and that gave off. And 
what was fascinating, and, and I talk about this, is that he didn't just launch into clinical questions. He, what he was using, he was leveraging curiosity to create understanding, and understanding creates connection. And little did I know it, then there was this kind of essence, this mist of hope, which was, I felt it because it just felt different. So anyway, at one point he had to shift after he'd asked these questions about the animals and everything else. And he said, two questions no one had ever asked me because they're counterintuitive. First question was, David, have, is there any history of mental illness in your family? And I thought, hmm. Uh, and I'm like, wow, you know what? I haven't thought about it in a while, but my understanding is my father's father, my paternal grandfather ended his life by suicide and my dad was really young. And then my dad died when I was young. And while I don't have any specific memories, my three older brothers shared with me that our father was horrifically and devastatingly overwhelmed with clinical depression. He didn't die by depression. He died by cancer. But at this point in my life now, I know that the, the depression can weaken every part of you to make you more susceptible. And so the doctor then said to me, he says, now, David, realize what you're dealing with is depression is a medical condition. Okay, well, no one had ever said that before. And he said, because it's a medical condition like diabetes and heart disease and these other things, you can inherit the gene. You can inherit the predisposition. But just because you inherit that, any kind of predisposition, it doesn't mean you're going to suffer from it. He said, oftentimes there has to be something else. And if you can imagine the, the dry kindling of the predisposition for mental illness, something needs to light it some sort of match. And he said, oftentimes the sad news is it's trauma. And then Victoria, I will never forget, he, this man shifted in his chair in this way that I can only describe, it was like compassion in form. And I love the definition by Krista Triplett in her great TED talk that compassion is curiosity without assumption. Like I didn't feel like I was just another patient. And he said, he looked at me and he said, David, have you experienced any trauma? Has there been any trauma in your life? And no one had ever asked me the question. And I thought, I don't know, like my brain went blank. So this man picked up the nonverbal clue and he said, well, you, you, David, you mentioned that you were young when your father died. And my God, he said, how old were you? And I said, I was seven. And he said, David, that, that's traumatic to lose a little boy losing his father at such a young age. That's, that's traumatic. And then he said, has there been anything else? And Victoria, there was something else, something I had never shared. I was 48 years old at the time, but hopefully you and, and, and others have had the experience where someone has just set the table where it's so safe that you are compelled to unburden your soul. And, and so I shifted uncomfortably and I took a breath and I said, doctor, when I was 11, I was sodomized and violated and tortured and raped by a Boy Scout leader. And when the words went out of my mouth, it was one of those instances in which I so desperately wanted to grab them and pull them back. I just, I felt shame and guilt and all of this. And, and then there was this silence in which it was uncomfortable. And I didn't know, did he not hear me? Or I didn't know, but again, I know now that this sweet soul was processing. And he, <laughs> he looked at me and he said, David, you didn't choose your genetics. You didn't choose your trauma. You didn't choose depression. You didn't choose suicide. 
wasn't your choice. And then he reached forward, Victoria. <laughs> he took me by the hand and he said four words, which changed my life. He looked at me and he said, it's not your fault. Now, he may as well have been speaking Mandarin because the monster had convinced me it was my fault. I, I was, this was my just desserts. I had done something that was so horrific that I, I indeed needed to pay this price. And again, this sweet soul picked up on those nonverbal clues, just held my hands just a little bit tighter and said, David, it is not your fault. And this time I could hear him a little bit and I was allowed to stand up and a longer answer to your question, my cause is unfortunately incredibly common that there can be some form of genetic predisposition, but that in and of itself is not enough. The trauma really is the thing that not only ignites it, but left unresolved and, and grief is traumatic. Left unprocessed, left unshared, left unexamined. It, it's like a smoldering ember that ultimately will become combustible. And there's Johan Hari, I say Johan like he's my friend, <clears throat> He wrote this great book after the TED Talk called Lost Connections, in which he's a brilliant writer and a storyteller, in which he says that there's more and more data. I'm not a big data person, but there's more and more evidence that's pointing to the impact of trauma on the, as the genesis of mental illness and less and less on the genetic aspect. The genetic aspect, I think, is a contributing factor, but in the absence of trauma, I don't know, and I've never heard, which doesn't mean it doesn't exist, of an instance of mental illness that people just become mentally ill because there was this gene. I mean, it could, maybe, but in all the stories that I read about, and, and when people bless me with sharing their stories, there's always trauma. And it, it could be the, the loss of a parent. It could be the loss of a pet. I mean, you, I'm preaching to the choir in the sense grief is grief. Grief is individualized. Grief is, is personal. Grief is everybody's grief is different. And so we, we dishonor people by saying that you need to grieve this way. You, and people don't realize what the impact of, of conditions are, be it grief or COVID-19 or whatever it is, and just the vast uncertainty that we're experiencing globally right now. That all can usher people into a more exacerbated experience of mental illness. Maybe they had a lesser degree before this pandemic and now that's being exacerbated, or there's some who have situational mental illness and most likely depression or anxiety, and it's coming up for the first time. So I, I think those are the baseline causes. And if you had to, if you had to distill it down to one word, that the cause of mental illness is trauma. I would agree. Yeah. It's so uncanny how similar our stories are. Because <laughs> my dad died when I was eight of cancer. I'm so sorry. And uh, thank you. And thank you for sharing your story too. And I was also molested as a child. So it is uh, trauma, right? I absolutely 100% agree with you. Yeah. Um, and you know, the other part about that is what I try to tell people now, and, and I, I would imagine you do the same, just having this initial wonderful experience with you with grief Trauma doesn't have to be what you and I endure. That, but tra yep. tra trauma can be something that for one person 
it's not traumatic, but for another person it is. And so I think we cannot, if, if we do an incredible disservice and exacerbate somebody's trauma by trying to put it into a box that we've experienced or a box that is defined that way. And the same thing with grief. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if somebody who has been married to somebody else for 50 years and this soul dies and, and people will, I think with all good intent say, well, you had them for 50 years and they're in a better place. And you want to say, I don't want to hear that. And then, but, and then when people give that thought, like, and the same thing with the person who can't get out of bed from depression is, well, you should get out of bed. Look, you have it better than the people who are starving in Africa. And then we, we shame those people. We've eliminated the possibility they're going to talk about it. So then their thoughts become contaminated because they have no air. We have exacerbated their circumstance. And we may be, why are we then surprised that far too many souls are walking down the path towards ending their life? Because the suffering gets out to the point they lose. I, I define depression as the absence of possibility, reason, and hope. There's no possibility things are going to get better. We have lost the reason to live and hope is nowhere on the horizon. People don't die, in my opinion, Victoria, of mental illness. They don't, desire, desire, they don't die from the medical condition. They die from hopelessness. Without hope, forget it. You can live without love. You may not have the capacity to develop great faith, but if you don't have hope, you're done. You are done. And that's why I think both in, in any of the paradigm where people are suffering that the path out, not easy, but the way out is through the mechanisms, then there are many, of creating connection because connection creates hope. With hope, all things are possible. Everything. Everything is doable with hope. You can't see me right now, but I've been nodding my head like this whole time. <laughs> um. Yeah, you know, I just, I, you, I mean, I've been taking notes here. It's just so much good things. You know, and that's the whole premise of, too, of my podcast is to show people and give people hope. Yeah. And be, through story and through other people's stories that, because I love an underdog and I love an underdog who has made it through some really difficult times, turn their life around. And how did you do it? Show me how you, what you did. And show me the light. We have to go first. And that's how, like you said, that's, I mean, that's how you build connection too, is in community and grieving as a community, grieving, holding space for people, giving compassion, showing compassion. Oh. I love everything you said about compassion, by the way. And that's um, Krista, Krista Triplett. I mean, she has a great TED talk. And, and this is that quote. I was like, oh my God compassion is curiosity without assumption. It's like what I call my phrase on it is blank slate listening. You know what? And then here's another thing about listening just real quick before I forget the greatest quote of all time about listening is from the great Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, who wrote kitchen table wisdom. Please read it. I'm an unbelievable book collection of essays. So the great doctor says our listening creates a sanctuary for the homeless parts in other people. Oh, that's so good. So a soul is grieving. I think that's why peer support in any malady, because peer support gives hope. Hope defined as hearing other people's experiences. Like, oh, okay. I, you know, we, you know, dear sister, that we can become so consumed. The monster is so great at convincing of us with this whole slate of lies that we feel we are the only one 
who is this abnormal, this tarnished, this horrific. And then you sit amongst a group of other souls who are going through grief and loss and mental illness and anything else. You're like, oh my God. Just hearing other people's experiences gives us hope. And then I mean, you get like, you know, Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts said that happiness is a warm puppy. Okay, if that's true, hope is a whole group of eight-week-old Labrador Retrievers. <laughs> hope just wants to be with you. Hope has no demands at all. Just wants to hang out with you, wants to sit on your lap and go to sleep. Just like, you know, like when Gizmo, you told me that Havanese is made to sit in your lap. Okay, so Havanese, probably the, the root word for Havanese is hope. That's what I just <laughs> You know, it's funny you bring that up because actually the reason why we got a dog, we, you know, I, I'd mentioned that we had before that we had tried the, you know, when my kids were younger, we tried the whole um, rescue dog thing, but that didn't work out too well. What prompted me to get a dog again when my kids were a little bit older was the fact that my youngest was going to kindergarten. Mm. And I, that same year I was closing a business and I had a lot of change. And that's when a lot of grief started coming up for me. I had been a work at home, kind of stay at home mom. And I'd been so wrapped up in that identity of being a mom and having a business, having built a business and, and choosing to say goodbye to that. Although it was very difficult, I knew that it was the right thing to do. But I had a lot of grief coming up at that time. And I thought, what's the, what's the cure? <laughs> I need hope. I need a dog. And Absolutely. yeah, I, I pretty much came to my husband crying. Like I need a dog. I needed something. And in grief recovery, um, I know now that my dog was my stirb. Um, it, we call them stirbs, short-term energy relieving behaviors. Yeah. If, if we don't have hope and we don't have, feel like there's something good to look forward to, we look for things to make us feel better for a short period of time. And so, like you said, I, what you were leading to is like, even if you don't I think mean, that's how, how addiction happens, right? When we, absolutely when we don't have someone to talk to and we don't, we, we can't feel like we can express what is lying dormant within us. Those, that emotional grief energy, we either implode or we explode and right. It either comes out as manifests as disease and, and health problems, which I was experiencing at that same time, or, and I was drinking. Um, I actually ended up in the last year. I just, I, next month will be a year that I quit drinking completely. Congratulations. Um, thank you. But I say that though, just because it comes, ties back to what you've been saying, and that we look for things to make us feel better for a short period of time when we aren't willing to, when we don't, either we're not ready or we're unwilling to face the difficult stuff. And so what do you have to say to that when it comes to clinical depression? I mean, I think, so what I talk about is that what I was, what I've experienced, but then by these great coaches and mentors and therapists and psychiatrists and peer support and all these other, that the monster is not satisfied with just owning our mind. The monster wants to control our, our physiology, our psychology, and our spirituality. In other words, the, the monster wants to devour the whole of who we are, body, mind, and spirit. So my, by my own belief, and, and I live on the, the more severe spectrum, because I, I, I still have horrific days. I still have thoughts of killing myself from time to time, but I have this amazing set of tools and a mechanism 
So I have put my self-care on pedestal. There's nothing more important. And it's whole person care. It's not just one thing. I don't think that there's a, again, everybody's different. But for me, there's no single thing I can do to be well. I have to do all of it. I have to attend to the whole of who I am. And so for, it's about sleep, hygiene. In fact, I just, I realized I had, thanks to my beloved Summer, who's my sweetheart, she said, I think you have sleep apnea. And so I have one of those CPAP machines and all of a sudden, my God, I'm sleeping better. So it's sleep, it's diet. I try to eat as clean as I can. Occasionally, Colonel Sanders says, come visit me because I miss you. Um, <laughs> and I, I must heed the call. Um, and then I'm really good about exercise, uh, time outside. I have a badass psychiatrist. My, he's become like a father to me. This man is incredible, an incredible therapist. And they're distinct, although I do therapy also with my psychiatrist, which is a little unusual. I take two meds, but the important thing about medication, I think there's two hurdles that we need to get, we, we ultimately get people over. The first is, okay, meds can help you. But the other thing to realize that in the best case, the best case scenario, what your medication is going to do is to quiet your symptoms. Meds are not going to cure you. It's the difference between an antibiotic and an Advil. You break your leg, assume there's no infection, you control the pain and the symptoms, you quiet them so you can go do physical therapy and everything else. The same thing is true with the antipsychotic or an antidepressant or anti-anxiety that they quiet the symptoms to allow the true curative healing effects of diet and sleep and exercise and therapy and counseling and psychiatry. And then for me, my own spiritual practice and then a sense of defined purpose. The sanctuary no longer exists, but I give presentations now around the world in which I take this aspect of mental illness and I wrap it in animal stories. And they're not stories just because I want to tell people a feel-good story. They're feel-good stories, but they all have a very specific teaching point. And my experience has been, Victoria, that for people like us who are dealing with something difficult, an animal story gives us a safe distance to relate to the topic at hand without it being right in our face. And for the people who want to understand us, somebody understand like me, they can look at the story and I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Just a beautiful way you, you explain addiction that we look at that, why would you do that? But to realize in my belief that the people, people who have mental health disorders are actually far more tied into how they feel. They can relate more to how they feel than the normal person. And so in the acute experience of those, in the absence of compulsive behavior without condoning it, you have to have some way to bleed out that intensity. Again, I'm not advocating for addiction, but there's a reason behind it. Curiosity is the greatest and the most direct path to understanding. When we understand one another, it doesn't mean we have to agree, but at least like, okay, wow, now I get it. It makes sense. And then if you want, I know you, pro you made me promise I'd tell the Joshua story. This is actually a perfect spot for the Joshua story. So Perfect. we get a call one day at the sanctuary, and, and here's the story. So old man very old man, probably in his 80s, comes into the animal shelter not far from our sanctuary with a very old dog. He was a basset hound cross, caramel, color, caramel colored, swayed back like an old pony, had no teeth on the right-hand side, so his tongue hung out. So, okay, this is an old dog, kind of a hot mess. So the man comes in to, and talks to the staff and said, hey, I was walking and I found this dog as a stray, and I thought, 
the right thing to do, the right thing to do would be to bring him in and, and put him, maybe he can find a home. I don't know. So the staff was like, wow, that's not like the behavior you would assume of a, of a senior person. Thank you so mm-hmm. much. Just to help us out, if you could please just give us some information about you and where you found the dog, we'll take him in the back. Who knows? Maybe he's microchipped. So the man agrees to do that. Staff goes in the back, comes back and said, oh my God, we're in luck. He's microchipped. And then the staff member compared the information that was recorded on the microchip to the information that the man had filled out and it matched. Now, in that moment, I would have opened up a can of whoop ass on that man, the likes of which he had never experienced. I say, what if someone just dumped you out at the end of your life, like you had outgrown your usefulness, but this staff member, Victoria, like the most amazing demonstration of compassion I'd ever heard about. She shifted the question from what's wrong with you to what happened to you, sir? What's going on? What's happening? How can I help you? And in that moment, this beautiful man just burst into tears, like could not control. He sobbed, like his whole body. And he finally was able to get himself back together. And he said, this is Joshua. I've had Joshua since he was eight weeks old. There is nothing more important. This is my best friend. I'm dying. And I'm going into a medical facility and I can't take my dog. And I thought if I said he was a stray, instead of the fact I had to surrender him, it would give him more time to find a home. Mr. Rogers famously said that, quite frankly, there's no one you can't learn to love once you know their story. I would have done the same thing. And here's the beautiful thing about an understanding. This is like the, you know, this is the bonus. In the fertile ground, the level ground, the of understanding that has the soil of compassion, solutions and ideas, they just like, boom, it's instant manifestation. And that staff member who had asked that brilliant question, she said, there's a sanctuary down the hill, maybe they have room. And they called us, Dee and I went, I will never forget this wonderful man handing me the most important thing in his life and asking me to take care of his beloved pup. And all because somebody asked a question, Joshua was able to come to the sanctuary and be treated with dignity and respect and was able in time to make his transition. And this beautiful soul went on to end his life. And I think that that's why curiosity is the most direct path to understanding. I think curiosity is the most direct path to overcoming our fears about addiction and mental illness and grief. Because in my opinion, the opposite of fear isn't calm. The opposite of fear is understanding. The more we understand, the less we fear. So when we see these daunting behaviors, these societal conditions that are now just being exacerbated to an exponential level because of COVID and isolation and distancing and everything else, I think it's important for us to leverage curiosity to come to a place like we can understand one another. And if I think about the questions that the first responder asked me on the bridge and and the, the first question after he established logistics was, David, what does it feel like to be depressed? Like, in that moment, like, everything went calm. Counterintuitive question, it would be like, what does your grief feel like? We would think that that would put us into a more acute, but it's actually, that's what keeps you on the safe side of the rail, of the barrier. And so, 
you know, when we, I think in this time in particular, if, if we ask people and we leverage questions of what and how, not why and when, you know, when someone asks you a why, it almost automatically makes us defensive. And when adds in the stress of time, but what and how are very benign. They're actually beautifully neutral. And we ask, you know, what's it like? And if nothing else, we see somebody who's suffering and struggling and, and, and maybe they're not able to vocalize and articulate the difficulty. And, and maybe the question is then, what would help you feel like you were understood? Because I think when we feel like people understand us, man, is that, that's hopeful. Like, okay, I don't, I don't feel like some alien on some planet. You can't see my notes, but I actually wrote doctor and then what happened to you? Because oh. that is one thing that doctors will never ask. Like if you go to your general practitioner, I, I've done a few of these interviews now regarding like with mental illness or just in conversation, obviously about grief. And you go to the doctor, general practitioner or whatever, they never ask what happened to you. I, I had about of um, postpartum oh. and what I know now, it was postpartum at the time, I had some really dark thoughts and um, go to my general, go to my practitioner, nurse practitioner, share with her what I was feeling. I'll put you on an antidepressant. And it wasn't because of, well, I had a baby and then I had another baby and then I had another baby. It was this dormant grief that had been sitting there and was rising up with all the hormones and all the changes and just everything. And I didn't know what to do with those feelings. Things that you're saying, it's just, yep. Touching all everything, like every, every note that I have. And I'm asked, I'm wondering too, how then do you identify someone who may be clinically depressed or who is exhibiting the jolly go lucky person on the exterior? How do you figure out, that out like how what what even because even some of the people closest to you like the people closest to you had no clue right is that correct no even my beloved and and you know i say for you know my former bride this amazing soul who we're still really good friends um i was able to hide behind the velocity of our life like okay you can imagine let me just tell you 25 horses produce a lot of manure it's like And we literally picked up every piece every day because we wanted this environment to be pristine. Anyway, just so I could hide behind that. And and I think there are a lot of good actors out there. There are a lot of people like me that they call them. They fall into one of two categories. They're either smiling depressives or high functioning depressives. So you just have no clue. Like keep showing up and he's getting stuff done. And so if you look at the symptoms they're basically, it's changes in cognition. You can have people who all of a sudden are giving things away. Um, they may become very irritable. It's just, and so what I say to people when I, if I do a PowerPoint, and there's always an animal picture on it, is to, one, first, just be okay. Don't make yourself wrong. Don't be engulfed in shame. If, if you don't see these, because for people like me, these can be incredibly subtle. Like really the only way I think beyond something that's just really obvious is it's to follow that in, intuition that we all have. It's like, hmm, 
something seems off. And then you think, oh, whatever. You know, right now it'd be, oh, it's just the stress of COVID, which could be true. But I, I think we just, we need to pay attention. You know, I love the quote that says, attention is the purest form of generosity. Like, let's just be a little bit more mindful of one another and look for these because these signs are really subtle. And then when, when we do like, okay, we, we have the wherewithal to step forward and leverage curiosity, we need to ask a direct heartfelt question. And it could be something like, I may be totally wrong, but I'm just feeling like, I feel like you're suffering or I feel like you just, I just don't feel like, I just feel like something's wrong. Would you please tell me how are you feeling? And I think if we compose the question, is there's a difference between are you feeling okay? That's a yes and no versus how are you feeling? It's not, can I do something for you? It's what can I do? Do you feel like I understand you or what can I do to help you feel understood? People want to talk. You, they may be reticent. They may feel embarrassment and shame because there's still a stigma around this. I think it's lessening little by little, thanks to great people like you. Um, but I think ultimately people want to talk about it. And, and, and so we need to ask hard questions. There's a, a suicide prevention technique that was created by an amazing psychologist, Dr. Paul Quinette, and it's called QPR, which is question, persuade, and refer. It's kind of like CPR for mental health. Well, Dr. Quinette has this quote in which he said, it's the unasked questions that lead to tragedy. So, you know, I thought this, but, and it's counterintuitive. Like, why would that officer ask me, David, what does it feel like to be depressed? You would think, okay, that's really going to toss this person over. But again, that's what kept me safe. You know, what's it like on your worst days? You know, when, when you hear voices, what do the voices say? Would you please help me understand? I want to understand so I can, I can serve you. I can help you. And then quiet. And, and, the, and you have that quote from Dr. Remond says, you know, this gift of listening, it literally creates a sanctuary for people. Like I had a home to live on that day, but on that dark spot on the tall, tall bridge, I was homeless. You know, and the fact that this man listened to me he just listened. He just listened. That was it. He asked the question, then he listened. Like, wow, it's not really complicated. And I think what happens is I, there are available resources to process grief and mental illness and everything. And they're not perfect, but they exist. But if people don't feel connected, the door stays shut. That's why I did a talk recently, and I, I wanted to be a little... I wanted to grab people's attention in the talk was mental illness, a complex problem with a simple solution. Solution is connection. That, that's it. Like if we become more connected in all these different ways, become great at remembering people's names, leverage curiosity to create extension, become the master of the handwritten note. People need to hear how you feel about it. We, if you just become great with those things, you experience the mutuality of connection. It's mutually beneficial. And you will change people in ways that you cannot imagine. Um, and then if I can, I'm going to tell you a real quick, another real quick story. All that said, you can, I totally get how frustrating it can be if we do all these things. 
we're really looking forward to, we're looking to, to step up and, and help people. And there's no visible, we, we don't feel like what we do makes a difference. It's like, you know what? and you want to give up, like I'm doing everything I can. I'm, I'm doing all these steps. And so we had this bird at the sanctuary named Kia. She was a pretty good sized parrot. She had been abused by a man. So she comes and we had this big great room. And then Kia, there was this armoire and Kia had this beautiful platform. She had this great view, look at all the animals and everything. Dee's the brilliant one who created all the, the methods in which we took care of these animals. I was really good at picking up manure. I Like I can do it. So I was the feeder primarily. And so the first day I go up and I approach Kia's cage, Victoria, as soon as I did, she like shakes violently, turns around and goes to the rear of the cage. But I think, you know what? By then I'd been in rescue for a while and we'd run this, I have good energy, I'm, I'm, it's gonna be okay. Go up the next day, same thing. And so I, I changed the paper and I opened the cage and I put in the water, the nuts and her treats. And she's just like, oh my God. I thought, you know what, it's gonna be okay. So this goes on day after day, after day, after week, after month, and same thing, no change. And like I'm doing all these things to make a difference and nothing's changing. And at one point I said, honey, I can't do this anymore. This is, I think I'm making it worse, you know, and like you do it. And she said, no, babe, just, I know she, she needs to know that men are okay. I know it's going to change. And so keep going on. It's not going to change. Like nothing happens. And then one day I go up and I'm like robotic, Victoria. Approach the cage and she's doing her thing. And I change the paper, open it up. And I put the water in. I put the nuts in. As I put the treats in. Kia turns around and comes to the front of the cage, climbs up and pops her head out and puts her head down. And when a parrot does that, one, they're completely vulnerable because they can't strike you with their talon or bite you. And what they want you to do is to scratch their head. And I remember like, oh my God. And so the question is, was trust created in that moment? Or was it those small acts consistently done encouraged by this beautiful woman and it was of course the latter and then every time I came to the cage that head was down scratching my head and so you know the bad news is in in I think a lot of instances we don't get to see the impact of, of our kind acts but as somebody who's on the receiving end including a bark in the background there on the receiving end of an innumerable number of those, each and every one of those, even if I don't respond, they all have made a life-saving difference. And so I, I would just say, keep doing, keep making those deposits of kindness and compassion and love and understanding into the bank of a soul who's depleted. And it will in fact, and it can turn a life around. That's a beautiful illustration out a black and tan coon hound that's being very disrespectful on our podcast right now. <laughs> Just saying hello. Just saying oh, yeah. hello. That's Gigi, everybody. Okay, so I suppose the principle still applies in those rules, not rules, but that idea still applies when you have kids that are not necessarily very vocal and open and it's they're kind of like tough nuts to crack you know so, exactly now so here's an interesting it's an incredible segue i don't know if i shared this so i've never had children and d and i neither of us would and then with summer who's my beloved now she has three babies ethan is 15 bella is 12 and gracie is nine 
And so like, okay, this is a whole learning experience for me. And it is, is because I, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to learn, you know, leverage on the experience under the mentorship of my former bride. You know, they're sentient beings. That's the commonality, an animal and a child. Different, but they're sentient beings. And so for me to, to recognize the subtle differences and then leverage curiosity in a way that, that works for them, maybe not be so direct on a question related to depression or anxiety, but something different. And it, it's great. I'm still learning it. it it's, it's still a skill. And sometimes I mess it up horribly. Why did I say that? And there are times when at a point of relating, maybe something totally different. And for Grace and I, it's playing. Like she's super active and she'll say, David, okay, and we make up games and everything else. I remember these games, Victoria, that when I was nine years old growing up and I'm like, oh my gosh. So we used to make up all these games. And right. I think if nothing else, that's a point of connection for she and I. And maybe there's, she may then we've been in each other's lives now for almost two and a half years. And there's been these moments where she has shared when she's felt anxious, when she's been depression. And, and I know she knows I've never, the two girls, Ethan has, has seen me speak a couple of times. The two girls have not, but they, they have an idea. And I, Grace has gone so far as to say that in regards to when she's feeling depressed at times, that she says, I know David understands. So like, okay. You know, and she's, I tell you a quick, handwritten note story. Mm -hmm. So Summer and I don't live together yet. We're actually going to move in together in January, which will be great for all the parents out there. Please help me because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> oh my God. I have nowhere to run. I can escape now. now I, so anyway, I'm sorry. I'm afraid. So there was this day and I was in a bad space. I mean, I was just Oh man, depression was within my butt. So Summer had said, honey, could you go by the store and pick up a few things for me? And I said, sure. And then I didn't have time to take it to her house, which is not far away. And I said, babe, I'll just have to leave it in the car and you can come by. So I'm upstairs, take a shower and I come out to my car and there is not one, but two notes on my front seat. One is from Summer, just expressing her love and support. And the second one is from Grace. And I don't have it right here and we're on a radio anyway. So it's on a piece of, of line notebook paper and it's written in purple pen. And it says, hi, David, this is Grace. Thank you so much for being the best stepdad in the world. I love you so very much. And thank you for taking such good care of mommy. Now I took pictures of both of those, Victoria, and I sent them to Summer and I said, thanks. And she said, thank you so much because Grace wouldn't let me know what she wrote. So Gracie had no idea that I was having a bad day. And yet my child intuitively knew that in that moment, that's when I needed this reminder that I was okay and that I was loved and that what I was doing in service to her mom and loving her mother, she noticed that she picked up that whole thing. Right? I have that note laminated. You could offer me a million dollars for that. I'd say, no, you know, I could use a million, but no, it's not. Another note I got from a young woman who's like a daughter. At the end of the note, she said, depression can't have you because you're ours. <laughs> so it's, I, I think we might be surprised at how impactful small things are. You know, and I think what I tell people is, you know, we, 
each of us, because if we don't have initials past our names, if we don't have a PhD, we may think we're incapable and unqualified to make difference. But I think actually it's just the opposite, that we are all universally capable and qualified because we not only can we create connection, we know what it feels like. We know what it's like when someone remembers our name and we had no expectation that they would. It's just like, you remember who I am? When someone creates a safe place for us to tell our story, when we go to the mailbox and there is, uh, let's say, unsolicited mail, and then all of a sudden there's that uniquely sized envelope and there's that handwriting, like, okay, it's going to be one of three things. It's going to be an invitation, it's going to be cash, or it's going to be somebody taking the time to let us know they love us. Because if they think we're a butthead, they're going to send us a text. So it's just these things. I mean, I'm so passionate to just say, oh, we're in such a difficult position. It is an incredibly daunting and complex problem. Grief is can be overwhelming. But if we come together in that, that pure tribal sense and offer each other support, not advice, journey with one another, not one in front and one behind, just side by side, man, let's just walk this thing together. I think, I know that's the way we can win. I, I really, really do. And grief recovery, we call it being a heart with ears. Oh, I love that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, we need yeah. more of those. We do. And they're out there. I, I just think, you know, it's just, it's a matter. And, and who knows, maybe the silver lining and all the suffering and difficulty of COVID is a reset to a certain degree. I mean, it's not a reset I wanted. Um, and in, in terms of the work that you and I do, maybe what this has done is, is focus what really, what the, what really the, the most daunting problems that our society has are all in relation to mental health. That's it. Everything, you know, if there is no mental health, without mental health, there is no health. That's it. It's the foundation. It's like you're, you know, you're going to drown. And imagine when we feel well, interestingly, when I feel good, I treat other people really well. I mean, I do. It's just, you know, we stand in that beautiful place of understanding and do all these things. It's, you know, and, and courageous souls like you to bring attention to a really difficult subject. You know, like, man, that's, hi, I'm here to talk about grief. <laughs> yeah. You know Someone... I'm so sorry. I had, I didn't realize I had another appointment. <laughs> Someone, Someone asked me not long ago, she said, do you love grief? Wow. And I'm like, it, it caught me off guard actually. And I was like, yeah, grief is kind of my jam, but not in a way like, Oh, I love that though. Yeah, You know, it's, it's like, like you say, like you've, you, you wrote on your, on your form here, grief has become my friend and yeah. it's been my lifelong friend like yours. So it, yeah. I, it's just so, I, just the similarities. Um, I feel like you're a kindred spirit. Oh, no, I, I, yeah, I, I am, a, I'm a bit of a, like an obsessive freak about serendipity. I just, you know, I, I, you know, I don't believe in randomness or, or I, I just think, you know, you and I, the way we connect, there's no accident in this. It doesn't. And the fact that we, we are together now, all of it to me is divine in, in the most universal sense. I'm not trying to point to a certain belief system, but I just think it's not capricious. It's just, it's like, this is what it's supposed to be. So now I have a kindred spirit, you know, a sister that, understands and focuses on another aspect that I still deal with. You know, I, 
I don't know. I don't know if I shared with you that. So I was released from the psych hospital on September 15th, 2011. By the end of that year, I lost everything. Confluence and it's a longer story, which we don't have to talk about now, but just everything went away. I remember very clearly handing the keys to my vehicle and the repo man drove away. We lost our support because people thought if the co-founder was going to kill himself, what must be happening to the animals, which the animals were being cared for and loved in ways that most people wanted to be. But people freaked out. They were afraid. So the animals were taken away. We lost our house of foreclosure and it was sold at auction and the marriage crumbled under the weight. And so, I mean, it was literally like a fire had come and spontaneously erupted and wiped my life out. And with a borrowed car and one of my beloved Boston Terriers, Harmony, came to live where I live now with my two brothers and sister-in-law. And I look back now, like you say, I went from one sanctuary to another because it has been in this sanctuary that I have been able to heal. But and it, it's interesting, the other part of that is to, to underscore how connection saved my life on multiple occasions. When I was in the hospital, I met a guy named Don. Don was another middle-aged man who was going to kill himself. And when Don got out of the hospital, he found this men's depression support group, a group of middle-aged men who met every Tuesday for two hours. And for six years, every Tuesday, I'd see my therapist from four to five, take a break, and then go be in group for two hours. From that amazing place, I met my therapist, I met my psychiatrist, I got on the right medication, I was given the first chance to speak eight years ago, all because of a guy that I met in a psych hospital. And then you fast forward to the end of that year, had I not had the group and everything else, I didn't know the nightmare that was coming, the trauma and the grief that would overwhelm me, had I not met Don and made that connection, there is no way in the world that I would have been alive by the end of the year. That wasn't an accident that of all the people that could have come to the mental health, the mental health, the psych ward, that, that man and I met on that day and everything that happened out of that. You and I coming together now, there's no accident. I think that life is yearning, is screaming for us to connect in these ways, to open up our eyes so we can work together to heal what's going on. And healing is indeed possible. I'm not saying it's easy. It's a lot of work. You know, I spend, much, I spend as much time in self-care that the average person spends in a part-time job, you know, between working out and therapy and work, it just, it's a lot of work. It is, but I've had glimpses and experiences of mental health. I never thought possible. I'm just like, wow, man, that, it was interesting. So until like five years ago, August 31st of, of, the year was, every year was the worst day of the year. I'm a January baby. I hate summer. It's just, I don't like the heat. Northern California, it's, it's a dry heat, but still like that. So five years ago, I go to the mailbox and there is one of those uniquely sized envelopes. And I open it up on the outside of the card. It says, advice from a glacier, go slow, carve your own path, blah, 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 whatever. Like, I want to, like, toss this thing. But out of curiosity, I open up in this big, like, Crayola crayon orange print. It says, happy today. And it's from my incredible friend, Greg. And it was this support and this love and this encouragement. And as a result of that card, Victoria, August 31st of every year went from the worst day to my New Year's Day. And every year, including just recently on August 31st, I go back to the bridge and I park my vehicle in the same spot. 
and a walk to the midpoint, and a celebration in a New Year's Day. And this last year was the most extraordinary because my beloved, whose name is mentioned, just happens to be Summer, which I think is hilarious. She said, honey, I want to go with you. And here we are. I'm walking with the woman that I'll spend the rest of my life with. The juxtaposition between the epitome of isolation to the apex of connection as we walk to that same point, all thanks to a card that showed up on that day at that time. I'm just like, that's it. That's, we, we hold it in our hand. We can do this. It's, and then when we do, we open up access to all of these resources, to the heroic souls who stand on the front line, the people who embrace becoming a mental health service worker, to become a psychiatrist and a psychologist, who, who deal with the rigors and the upset of what they call courtesy stigma, that, that they share some of the stigma that we do by association. And yet they're like, that's okay, man. I don't care about that. You're, this is my peeps and I'm going to help these people. Like all of those relationships open up when we have that moment of connection and we can create it everywhere any place, any time, with anyone, no matter what. Wasn't that an amazing part one episode with David? Seriously, come back for part two. It's just as good. Uh, we get into how you can't drag someone from hellness to wellness, how difficult that is for people standing on the sidelines, watching someone who you know they love and, and care about, who is depressed and may have suicidal ideation, and, and how to help them. Uh, he gives more practical tips and advice around that. Uh, he talks about his own thoughts um, around the myths. I call them the myths of suicide prevention. We get into forgiveness, um, self-loathing, loathing to self-love, uh, which is very apparent with people who are clinically depressed. Um, just he shares a lot more personal story and great um, analogies of life uh, that we see in nature with animals. And he just makes everything just so relatable. Uh, so come back next week for that episode. And till then, take care. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it because sharing is caring. And until next time, Give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.